You are listening to Self Help for Serial Killers, Let Your Creativity Bloom, written by Mari R.R. Campbell Jack, longlisted for the Crime Writers Association debut Dagger, and a finalist in the Amazon Publishing New Voices Award. Working with your new identity. Trusting our creativity is a new behaviour for many of us. It may feel quite threatening initially, not only to us, but also to our intimates. We may feel and look erratic. This erraticism is a normal part of getting unstuck, pulling free from the muck that has blocked us. It is important to remember that at first flush, going sane feels like going crazy. Julia Cameron At this point, you should now have spent a week saying your bespoke affirmations to yourself every morning and night. I want you to start this week by taking a new notebook and every day noting down how you feel both before and after these affirmations. It may be that at first you won't feel much difference. You may still be at the stage of feeling slightly silly while you do them. Over the next few weeks though, as you look back over your journey, you may start to detect a new confidence in yourself as your new identity begins to form and you start to inhabit it fully. It is at this point, as you start to take steps further into the unknown, that you may uncover some internal resistance. Uncovering your true self is not something that will happen in a linear way. There will be days when you take a massive step forward and others when you feel as if you're moving backward or stagnating in one spot. This is normal and it's important to keep in mind that the development of your creativity and ultimately your plan to show your finished work to the world is a long game. If you try to push yourself too far, too soon you may harm what you are trying to do. As keen as you are for everyone to see what you are capable of, it is important to be patient and to know that if you take everything at a steady pace, it all unfolds at the right time. The type of resistance you could feel falls into several categories and these will fundamentally tell you how your destiny will unfold if you are a true artist or if you are going to forever remain a shadow artist. I will tell you more about how you can tell if your resistance is something you can get over or something that will forever make you one of the mediocre after I tell you about the first time I stepped into my identity. I was 19 and finally escaping Ross Moore to go to Edinburgh University to study modern languages. 
I was old to be starting at university. Most of my peers went at 17 or 18, but my school career had started slow. I'd been kept back a year in our small village primary school of 20 and had started secondary school late. My mother had made it clear to me that she expected great achievements from me academically, even though she had never blossomed in that area herself. And I guess I must have in some way rebelled by not paying attention and not making an effort in class. I have an extraordinarily high IQ, so it is unlikely that a lack of intelligence made them hold me back. In fact, I can barely remember much of what I was taught in that small pink sandstone school. You can look back over my school reports. My ex-wife has published every single document about me she could in her memoir, Married to a Monster. She wasn't up to writing it herself. She had to enlist the help of some tabloid hack, Matt Beale, who no doubt took a handsome sum for his work. Quite an industry has built up around me books about me are bestsellers, after all, but I think most people will forget my ex and Beale when they read this one. You will see from the reports that many of my teachers often complained about me zoning out, not paying attention or being present during class, and that this was reflected in my marks. Of course, I always knew I was capable of high academic achievement. I had just chosen not to achieve. Once I was in secondary school, I realised that education was my best chance to escape the confines of Highland life where you are constantly watched and commented on and gossiped about. Once I had the realisation and applied myself, I excelled. Of course, and with four hires all at A grade, I was readily accepted into one of the oldest universities in this country. I took the bus with its frayed seat coverings for the 20-minute journey from Rossmore to Inverness, where I took a coach for the four hours to Edinburgh. I thought as I boarded that bus in the September sun that I would be starting a new life in the capital, free from the shackles of my mother and small-minded Rossmore. I had finalised student accommodation when I'd been down the previous week, and only came back north to pick up the last of my stuff, which I had been able to pack into one backpack, and I wasn't planning on coming back. I didn't realise at the time how momentous this journey was going to be. It changed my life. It opened up my life. It showed me how I could blossom. That day, I started on a new path. Much has been written about Agatha Dvorak, as has been written about all my finished works, and she remains my favourite. True, she was not as elegantly executed as the others, but as I've told you in a previous week's work, judging early artistic effort is the same as abuse, and an artist must insulate himself from all abusive types. As soon as I saw Agatha on that bus, I knew there was something special about her. The grainy, black-and-white CCTV pictures from Edinburgh's St Andrew's bus station that are so often broadcast when she is talked about really don't do her justice. She was sitting at the back of the bus, brown hair falling over her shoulders, sunlight touching the top of her lips so you could see the soft, fine hairs on her skin. I knew I had to sit next to her. Her English was good, but... My check was appalling, so we managed to talk for the whole journey in a mix of English and functional German we both possessed. 
She was fascinated with Scotland, loved the country, loved the people, and I think a little in love with me. I knew it the moment she leaned in closer to me so I could smell her scent. Why wouldn't she be? I was able to offer what she wanted, a romantic dalliance with a handsome Highland man before she had to go back home to her studies and wealthy parents and friends in Prague and everything became faded memories. What is it like? she asked. What? Rosmoor. Rosmoor, it's called. Rosmoor, she said. What is it like? Is it big? God, no, I replied, looking into her hazel eyes flecked with green and gold. It's the back of beyond. Back of beyond? she asked. I don't know that meaning. Uh, the sticks? I suggested. She looked blankly at me, shaking her head and turning down her pretty mouth in an exaggerated way. Um, rural? Still, a blank look. Countryside. Way, way out in the countryside. Her face lit up. Ah, we have a saying in Czech. Tam divava lishka dupronosh. Tam di dav... I started saying, and she dissolved into giggles. No, no, she replied, and said it again slowly for me. What does it mean? It means the place where foxes kiss goodnight. It's what we say about somewhere far out. So far, even the foxes don't go there. Ah, I replied, and held her gaze. Where foxes kiss goodnight. Even this doesn't really capture what it was about Agatha that was so attractive. It was a je ne sais quoi, something undefinable. She was radiant and light and laughed easily and fully, not caring what other people thought. I was entranced and turned on the full extent of my charm, albeit a rather unrefined charm of a 19-year-old man. It worked. It has always been easy for me to charm people on first meeting. However, at this point, I didn't really know this, and I was delighted when she responded positively to my attentions, my smiles, the looks from under my eyelashes. We both napped on the bus, her head resting on my shoulder in an intimate display of her trust. By the time we arrived at Edinburgh bus station, stiff from the journey and the nap, the sky was heavy with grey clouds which spat out rain against the bus window. Ah, it is raining. It rains so often in Scotland, yes? Agatha said. Yes, I like it, she said smiling and looking around. I like how cool the rain is. I took the initiative and told her about a friendly pub I knew on Rose Street from my other trips to Edinburgh. We sat in the wood-panelled room with its central wood and brass bar, and she sipped Scottish beers and told me about her charmed life in Prague. Then in one moment everything changed. I can still remember it clearly. She was telling me about something she loved. She 
wanted to emphasize how much she loved this thing. So her eyes widened and instead of placing the flat blade of her tongue against her upper teeth to emphasize the L of love, she bunched the muscles so it became somehow rounded. Suddenly, her tongue didn't look like a normal part of her, but something separate, almost animal, like a blind underground creature searching through some opening in the earth for something outside of the damp, dark world it knew. It was disgusting. I was horrified in that moment, and I decided to kill her. I persuaded Agatha that to have a real Edinburgh experience, we would need to go on a pub crawl down Rose Street. We stumbled from pub to pub, most of them offering the usual mindless tourist fare in stone rooms with sticky tables. She grew tipsier, and every time she laughed or giggled, she'd lean further and further into me, flicking her long hair over her shoulder. It was past midnight by now, and she was drunk, and the fat, bearded barman was looking at us from under his bushy brows, and I could tell he hated us. I can show you a beautiful sight. Would you like to see it? It's a full moon. Yes, she whispered, looking into my eyes. I steered her through the sodium streetlights to the west end, down a slope, and on to the Dean Bridge. It was still with silence. Edinburgh was asleep and no buses were running. Only one lone taxi passed us in the ten-minute walk. Edinburgh is a city that sleeps. Thank God. Apart from August, that is. The moon was high and cast its light over the gorge below us, which the water of Leith trickled through hidden from our eyes by the lush growth of trees below us. She leaned against the stone of the bridge, looking out. I stood beside her, facing Dean Village, my head turned so I could look at her. It is so beautiful, she said, smiling to herself. I could tell she was feeling fully content, present in the moment and satisfied with her life. I edged closer to her. She turned and looked into my eyes, then down at my mouth, and I could tell she wanted to kiss me. Wanted that kiss to seal this perfect moment in her life. I slipped my right hand round her waist, stepped so I was half behind her, squatted slightly, gripped her thighs, and in one swift motion, lifted her up and pitched her over the side of the bridge. She let out one long scream. And then there was nothing. I glanced up at the new townhouses whose backs were turned towards me. No light flickered on. No one came to the windows to look out, alarmed. Everyone continued to sleep. And I walked away. Can you guess how I felt? One, elated. Two, scared. Or three, sick. How do you think you would feel in the same situation? 
close your eyes now and imagine her turning her beautiful face towards you, so satisfied with herself, and then the way her eyes widen with surprise as she thinks you are playing, and then widen even more with terror as you push her over the edge, and she realises in that split second what is happening to her, realises that she is going to die and her perfect life is at an end. If you circled one, you, my friend, are an artist. One and two, you are close to coming out of the shadows. Carry on working through this book and applying its lessons and you can make it. One and three, you may not have what it takes. Carry on working through this book and think hard about what you really want. Two and three, you're pathetic and will never be able to achieve true creativity or even genius. You should probably stop reading now. One, two and three, you are conflicted. While continuing to work through this book, think carefully about what you really want. What did I feel? I know that you want to know. I felt one and two. At first I was elated. I was walking away. Not running, as that might draw attention should anyone happen to look out of their window or any more taxis pass. Although... I look calm and cool, just a young man nonchalantly walking home. I felt as though a thousand suns were exploding inside me and coursing through my veins. It was a feeling I had never experienced before. Hard to describe, it was like a lightness, a bursting. I think it was happiness. I spent the next days and weeks in fear. Once the elation wore off, I was regretful, wondering if someone had seen me, wondering if that barman would remember us, wondering if I should go back to the Water of Leaf, remove her body and hide it somehow. In between, there were bursts of elation again, as the image of her face interrupting my doubts, and I felt calm before the doubts closed in once more. Have you ever done something you've fantasised about for years? It's amazing. The power. You feel it having done it. Having made it for yourself. It is the greatest sweetness you could ever taste. So you can see, even someone as accomplished as me starts out with doubts. Doubts, even feeling scared at some points, are normal parts of your journey. Many people give up when they have doubts. They think their doubts are signs that they are not meant to be on this path. Instead, you need to view those doubts as natural resistance you are encountering because your old self, your old psyche, fears what will happen when you break out of your normal patterns. The big question, the one that will make the difference between the shadow artist and the true artist, is how will you deal with that resistance? A very small number of you will feel the resistance and, like me, push through. I will tell you more about how I did this later in the book. What is more common is that you will feel the resistance and make sporadic attempts to push through it. After some time trying this, you will again feel resistance and go back to being your shadow self. You will be one of the unfortunates who are constantly at war with themselves, on the one hand yearning to achieve greatness, and on the other too afraid to take the necessary steps. The only people who can be truly at peace are those of us who know our own nature and accept it fully. That means 
either true artists like myself, or the never-beens who read my story, put themselves in my shoes and only feel sick or scared. If that's you, I'd urge you to stop reading now. You don't deserve this book. So what of the shadow artists? Forever wanting to create, but resigned to living in fear. What can you do? Well, you don't have to spend your life in a torment of yearning. I have things you can do. Ways you can use your meagre talents to support true artists like me. And I'll tell you all about them. Soon. of Canadian whiskey and spite again